I'm going to get you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. Um, this is the verse where we're going to be this morning. Um, I just want to share a couple of other things with you as well. That um, It's good to have Ward here. Uh, Ward Berry is um, going to university here in Hamilton. And uh, so Ward's come across here uh, this morning to, to join with us in worship as well. So it's good to have Ward here. His parents came over with a, a bag of goodies for him yesterday. So we, we didn't forget it, Ward, either. We've actually bought it. So... Uh, um, but uh, so Luke chapter 14 verses 25 through, through 35 is where we're going to be reading it's our text this morning um, I'm not sure what the title is in your Bibles mine says discipleship tested um, various different translations will look at it differently but um, I guess just by way of introduction this morning um, just going back to the parables for a moment um, you know parables apparently in, during Jesus' time um, were a common form of speech that people spoke in parables and uh, various different writers have written about that and so on that um, it was quite common for the for the Jews but not only the Jews but also uh, the Arabic nations as well that they would speak by parables when Jesus came along of course so parables are not new um, but uh, many writers have testified to the fact that Jesus gave the simple or the humble parable integrity he gave it something special and uh, he would turn parables into I mean that some of the some of the deepest truths concerning uh, the spiritual life or concerning creation, the heaven, the universe, the purpose of life are all contained in a simple parable. And uh, so Jesus would really use parables to a great effect. And you know, of course, somewhere in the book of Matthew, I think it talks about the fact that Jesus taught by no other than the parables, and he just constantly used them in his teaching. And I think it's really important for us to 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 think about that and spend time in the parables. And um, and so that's what we've, we've been dealing with that this year as well, various different parables and uh, through, through the Gospels as well. But um, just by way of introduction to the message this morning, just kind of put your mind off the parable for a moment and this whole thing about discipleship. Um, it is estimated that there are 2 billion Christians worldwide. Now, you think it's a huge number, 2 billion Christians worldwide, supposedly, according to something like CIA statistics. Not sure why the CIA would want to really even know that, but um, but they estimate as well that there are some five million Christian workers worldwide, and many of those are unpaid, of course, that they're in voluntary work and so on. And when you consider as well that um, the statistics on the number of Bibles that are printed vary, but um, I've just looked up some recently. We we had a Sunday school class, uh, my wife and I, just recently. We told them that there were four hundred million Bibles printed each year, and. Uh, Bible in schools, sorry, because we, we teach in Bible in schools. By the way, do you have Bible in schools here? You do? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's just wonderful how the Lord is still providing that ministry uh, to go into the schools and to teach the children. Uh, more importantly than that, that you may have an opportunity to witness to the teachers as well, because many of the teachers sit in and listen, and, uh, and uh, that's a, it's a wonderful opportunity that God has provided. But, um, but some of the statistics that I've read lately, 45 million Bibles are printed every year, uh, around about 7 to 10 million Christian books are printed annually. I'm sure not all of those are, are, are um, wholly trustworthy, but um, you know you have a good library here and so on, and, and you see these books being printed and so on. Maybe part of the problem, if we think about statistics, there are over 38,000 denominations. That might actually be a bit of a problem there somewhere. Um, that's a lot of denominations. But um, coming back to this 2 billion Christians worldwide, that's a phenomenal number of followers of Christ. Uh, incredible number. Uh, in fact, we'd probably be quick to argue that are they all truly followers of Christ? And um, 
And I say that to you this morning quite reservedly because I want you and I to think about that as well. Don't approach this from the point of view that I am a true disciple in Christ and uh, the other two billion, well, I'm not so sure, all right? And uh, it's not really for us to judge others, but for us to to look at ourselves as to whether or not we're truly disciples of Christ. But, you know, when we get into this disciple or this follower of Christ, it's a it's, a, it's an uh, interchangeable definition, I guess. Uh, a follower of Christ is someone who loves and is loyal to Christ. And uh, I hope and pray that you, are all, you will love the Lord and that you are loyal to Him. Um, also, we could define it as someone who is saved, someone who is baptized and, and bearing fruit. And all of these things are important. It should be someone who loves the Word, loves to pray, loves to attend church, participates regularly in the Lord's Supper, witnesses for Him and is most importantly, looking for his return. These are all definitions of a follower of Christ. Um, Some of the areas that we're less likely to want to get involved in, but this ought to be someone who is willing to sacrifice and uh, someone who is willing to endure persecution, as you've mentioned here this morning as well. It's a part of the Christian faith. They're all good definitions. Um, But what did the Lord actually say about following him? That's what I really want to get to this morning. Because these are all biblical definitions. Someone who loves Christ, someone who's loyal to Him, saved, baptized, bearing fruit. All of those things are good definitions of a believer in Christ. And I hope that that this is all true in your lives. Uh, But what did the Lord Jesus say about following Him? I want us to look at uh, two simple parables, I guess, that reinforces Christ's view on what it means to follow Him. And um, one involves a tower builder. By the way, when you think about parables, the fact that Jesus would choose something to use as a parable. So in other words, he might say the kingdom of God is like this, or he might say uh, this is how you enter into the kingdom of heaven. And he would use a parable. He would use something from that you would see in everyday life. I don't think there was any uh, chance that he just simply haphazardly chose something and just said it's maybe like that because that's probably how I would share a parable. All right, I think that God was very specific and very particular about what he chose and here he chooses a tower builder now i don't think that building towers is any different back in old testament or new testament time as it is today it's building a tower is not something that you say well you know what sunday morning i know what i'll do this week i'm going to build a tower why don't we build ourselves a sky tower be a piece of cake let's just get in and build it we could build one right out there and just be wonderful these are not things that we take lightly And the second parable is the parable of a king who goes to war. I don't believe for a minute that a king just simply gets up one morning and says, I know what, let's go to war today. All right. There's a lot of preparation goes into it. There's a lot goes along uh, with dealing with that. And it's not something that you take lightly. You don't just simply rush out there and decide to build a tower. Neither you just simply rush out there and decide to get into war with somebody. There's there's a lot lot goes into it. So I want to read Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. And I know that you love the ESV here. I think it's a, it's a wonderful translation as well. And um, so I, I'm going to read it to you from the ESV this morning. It says, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Interesting how um, you want to build a fellowship. You want to build a growing congregation. It's kind of it's an interesting approach that Jesus has. Oftentimes we would say these doors are open to everyone. Please come in and get under the teaching of the Word of God. Uh, we want you to be saved and convicted of your sin and, and, and growing in Christ and so on. 
Um, but our approach would be simply very open to that. Jesus' approach is very different, remember. It just simply, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, Jesus says, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Literally, because he's greater than you, he will simply ask for your surrender and you will capitulate because you haven't really prepared for it. You haven't considered whether outnumber two to one, whether one of your men is as good as two of his. And so he will ask for you to surrender. So therefore, Jesus says, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus is bringing something else into it there as well. Salt is good, Jesus says, but if salt has lost its taste, and we certainly hope and pray that that isn't the case in the lives of Christians here today, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. And Jesus says to the crowds, who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let him listen to what it is that he has had to say. Now, the context and setting of this particular parable, these two parables, is very simple. It began there in Luke chapter 14 at a Pharisee's house. Um, fascinating how Jesus would actually spend time to eat with the Pharisees. And by the way, I don't know that the Pharisees invited Jesus to eat necessarily out of good nature. They, they, they were really there to try and catch him out is why they invited him, but they, they, they had wrong motives and Jesus could see that. But um, while he was there eating the meal, Jesus taught the parable of a wedding feast in verses 7 through 11. And he reinforced there the idea that we are to avoid helping ourselves to the chief seats, to come right up to the front. Not too many of you have come up to the chief seats this morning, which is good to see, but not quite that way. But, but in other words, when you're invited, what he's saying is you go and sit in the lowest place and then hopefully somebody who will see you will say, you come up and then you will be, you'll be pleased by the fact that you've been recognized, not the other way around, asked to sit at the back. And then Jesus taught a parable about a great banquet. That reinforced the idea that um, there is no blessing gained from just inviting the rich or those who are famous. Uh, instead, he said, invite the lame and the poor, and then you'll be recognized for that. And also, th there is some, there's no gain in inviting the rich because they're just simply going to repay like for like. And uh, what's really more important is, is that you do something for someone who cannot repay you. And that's um, a blessing and a privilege. And so... In that parable of the great banquet, I guess, the parable explains how the rich man invited many guests. I'm sure you're familiar with this one, but it's in verses um, 12 through 24. And you remember how the guests invited, accepted his invitation at first, but then when the wedding was ready, or the great banquet was ready, sorry, they all declined. They had excuses. I cannot come because of this, that, and the other. And the rich man therefore invites the, the sick and the lame and the destitute to replace those that were were originally invited. And, um, and then remember how there was still more room and so on. 
And so the rich man then uh, asked his servants to go out and invite even the outcasts. Let's just bring in those that simply have no place at all uh, in the world. Let's just bring them in and they came too. Now the moral of that story was simple. Salvation was offered to the Jews first, but when the time came they rejected Christ and he's telling them in advance that this would happen. So then salvation was offered to the Gentile sinners and they warmly received the invitation and glad because of it um, because they, could, they, they were entering into his presence. But one of the fascinating things about that parable is that salvation was then offered to the entire world. This is something that you and I have difficulty with sometimes because the inf- invitation, I guess, is very far-reaching. And the invitation to receive Christ goes to those who sometimes we look at and say to ourselves, they don't deserve it. They don't deserve God's mercy and love and grace, and yet God has made it available to them. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but for all to come to repentance. And that all is literally all. It includes those people that you say to yourself, that person has really offended me. How, how is it possible that that person has come or could come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? But you got there, and you were a sinner yourself too, and outside of God's grace at that point until you repented of your sin. Now, this teaching, um, of course, that he's giving to the, to the people uh, brought great comfort to them. This idea that um, there's a parable of a wedding feast, and it said, you know, don't take the, the chief seats, drop back to the back, and so on. And, and the parable of the great banquet, the idea that. Um, because uh, you, you think about the crowd that's following Christ. This is where we're getting to in the Luke chapter 14. You think about this great crowd that is following him. This great crowd is not just made up of Jews. So it's great comfort to those people who are coming because they're thinking to themselves, um, it makes a lot of sense what he's saying. It makes a huge lot of sense, gives them great comfort. But it prompted Jesus to stop and to turn and to say something to them that the people were not expecting. What the people, the crowd that were following him were not expecting that he would turn to them and say, if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life he also he cannot be my disciple. Now Christ's point is, were they aware that the nature of true discipleship is self-denial? In fact, self-denial is central in all of Christ's teaching. In Matthew 10, Matthew 16, Luke chapter 9, it just repeats over and over again, whoever does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Let him deny himself. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. It it continues and repeats itself. This self-denial is what we call self-renunciation. That's a huge word. But it's a fundamental Christian condition, sorry, of discipleship it's the one indispensable condition of your faith is is that you deny yourself it's the act of handing over your rights even your title and when you think about it we all have rights we all like to think that we have rights and we all like to think we have titles and jesus saying no you hand over all of that what he's saying is is that all who will taste of my supper that he's been teaching prior in, in in chapter 14 all who will taste of that and be a part of that, must be willing to count the cost of full fellowship with him because it will involve self-denial. Now, self-denial involves, there are three things that I wrote down very quickly. Number one, having a love for Christ that makes all other love look like hatred in comparison. That's why he said you must hate. 
Christ's demands are far-reaching, and those who would follow him all the way must be prepared to love much less their mother, their father, their brother, their sister, and, and so on. That means that our loyalty to Jesus Christ must be above the highest forms of loyalty that is known to us. It means that our love for one another must be subordinate to our love for him. He must have first place in our life. Now we think to ourselves, well, that's, that's reasonably straightforward. That's, that's what I expected when I came into, into the Christian faith. But then we must have a, a willingness to take up the cross, our own cross behind Christ. We must understand that the cross that Christ bore was actually, whose was it? The, Christ, the cross that Christ bore, it's a tongue twister, whose was it? It was our own cross that he bore. It was the symbol, I guess, of the future that Satan had for each and every one of us. And that symbol represented death, all right, separation from God. It was the symbol of judgment for my sins. But Jesus willingly substituted himself, emptied himself for me and for you, and bore my cross uh, at Calvary. Are you willing to do the same for him? And that's what he's really saying. Are you willing to do the same for him? Now, I might say to myself, well, I am willing to do it for Christ. I'm willing to do that. You think about this woman um, over there, and where was it again? Sudan, uh, willing to, to, to bear her own cross and so on. It's something to do it for Christ. How about doing it for others? Are you willing to bear a cross for someone else? That's an interesting thing as well. You were to bear, willing to do the same for him and for others. And so the point number three is this. This is where we want to get to this morning, is be willing to give up everything. Now, everything could mean literal possessions. I'm not sure how much you have. Um, if you come and have a look at what I have, it's not much either. All right. Sometimes we struggle as Christians. Physical possessions don't seem to concern us so much, though, because Jesus, um, I mean, he did say that literal possessions would potentially hinder us from uh, uh, from from growing in Christ. It says in Matthew chapter 9, verse 24, it's easier for a camel, remember, to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of heaven. But everything is not necessarily tangible things, all right? Everything could be pride. It could be bitterness. It could be envy. It could be jealousy. Um, could be hatred. could be all of these things. We need to be willing to give up all of these things that would prevent us uh, come, uh, to growing in Christ. Now, how do we know these things are important? Because Jesus said three times, without these, you cannot be my disciple. And uh, because of this, he gave the people two very simple but very forceful parables, the parable of a tower builder. And by the way, you know, when I said that Jesus's choice of these two subjects was, was no, it wasn't just a chance thing, the tower builder is someone who builds up, all right? The other idea is, is that the king who goes to war is someone who breaks down. There is an idea in your life that you need to be building yourself up in Christ, but also removing sin and things that prevent you from growing in the Lord. So it's interesting how he gives this comparison. But he says there in uh, verse 28, For which of you wishing to build a tower does not first sit down and calculate the cost? The idea is that of a builder who hasn't fully prepared for the project. The foundation is laid. You are willing to come into, um, through saving faith, you are willing to enter into that relationship with Christ. But because the cost of the project was poorly calculated, you didn't realize that it was going to require you to do what it actually required you to do. And so like the tower builder, the funds ran out, the resources ran out, and the project had to be abandoned. Now the application to that is not hard to find as Jesus was presenting this to the people 
Because what he's saying is an unfinished life in Christ is probably a more tragic spectacle than a tower that never got finished. All right, An unfinished life in Christ would be far more tragic. Jesus implies that there will be many who will not fully consider the cost. And, um, you know, Greg was talking about this woman in Sudan this morning, but when you think about it, 50,000 Christians, they tell us, estimated, are martyred each year for their faith. Um, it was fascinating to read uh, through some of the, the statistics that I read, but in 2009, that number peaked to 150,000 Christians were martyred for their faith through Pakistan, Indonesia, India, and Africa. Now think about that. Those people had truly counted the cost of what it would be to follow Christ. But even on a lower level, what Paul said in, uh, to, to the church at Galatia when he said, Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? What, what hindered you? What stopped you from growing in the Lord? It is possible, Jesus is saying, to start off strong in the Spirit, but then end up in the flesh. How foolish can you be, Paul said, after starting your Christian lives in the Spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? Failure to adequately count the cost of following Christ fully results in an unfinished life. And he's using the parable of the tower builder to give that illustration. There's a wonderful quote. I've got a number of quotes for you this morning. I love good quotes because I always wish that I had come up with them myself. And uh, this one particular quote is uh, two quotes. Number one, that which costs nothing is worth nothing. Um, now, you might say to yourself, well, no, no, somebody gave me something free the other day and it cost me nothing and, so, and it's worth a lot. But this is really to do with the effort that you're putting into your Christian faith. If it's costing you nothing, then it's probably worth nothing. The second one is this. If Jesus Christ is not Lord of all, then he is not Lord at all. Think about that. If he's not Lord of all to do with your life, and as you go through the week, if he's not Lord of your entire week, then he isn't actually Lord of your life at all, is he? It needs to be, uh, um, he needs to have preeminence in your life. And so remember this, though, that if we count the full cost of surrender to Christ, we can also count on the fullness, I guess, of his rich mercy and grace and so on to help you through that. If you think to yourself, well, I'm not so sure that I'm willing to give up everything to follow Christ. No, no, don't forget this, that he will provide for you. He he will guide you and comfort you through that. But in all of this, Jesus is the perfect example concerning counting the cost. Um, God the Father counted the cost of redeeming the world when he sent his son into the world. He knew, of course, that that would be what was necessary to redeem us and to bring us back into right relationship for him. But when you think about it, and Jesus is talking here about hating your father and mother and so on. What he's really saying is loving less than you love me. He had every right to ask you to leave your father and mother and so on because he left his own. He knows exactly what that would take or what that would cost. Anyone, Jesus says, who comes to me but refuses to let go of father, mother, spouse, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even one's own self cannot be my disciple. All the way through the New Testament, we find this. Mary herself had to take secondary place, remember, as Jesus' earthly mother. Um, and she did that out of concern for the work that he was called to do. And so Jesus knew all about the shame and ridicule and humiliation and so on that it would cost him to leave his father's house um, to build a tower that would be what? The tower that Christ built was the church. Imagine if it simply wasn't finished, but it was because he completed it. The huge cost, of course, uh, of that whole exercise took his life. 
He became that sinless, spotless lamb um, that died for the sins of the world. One writer said this, and I love the way he put it, the road to true discipleship is smeared with the blood marks of him who calls us to follow him. And because he counted the cost, he could then cry out in triumphant triumph, it is finished. Um, there's another quote that I read during the week as well. I love this. There are no bargain basement price tags on discipleship. You simply cannot go to the warehouse and buy one. All right. I love the warehouse, all right, but what it's saying is, is that you just will not find a bargain basement price tag for discipleship. It's going to cost you something. It will cost you something. And then there's the parable of the king who goes to war. It says, Or what king going to war against another king sitteth not down first and consulteth whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20? Um, the first parable is reckoned with money. The second is really reckoned with human life, thinking about the cost. Uh, the, the first, of course, is reckoned with the idea of preparation and, and having enough resources to complete it. But the second is the need for stamina. If you enter into the, to the Christian life, you must be prepared to last the distance. Uh, King had to give much thought as to whether his 10,000 could prevail over 20,000 or whether or not his men were worth one of two of theirs. If not, the enemy is going to humiliate you, is what Christ is saying. The application to that is not hard to find. Jesus is the king, and he looked out at his would-be followers. He turned to them as, as they were following him, and he said to themselves, knowing, of course, that they had not yet figured on what was to come, he's saying to himself, do you as a Christian have the fitness levels? Do you have the physical toughness, the mental stamina to last the distance? Do you really, as believers in Christ? Um, it's a fascinating thing, but you think about that whole parable dealing with a king who goes to war. Um, if you were a soldier at that particular time in those days, I think it would be a frightening experience. What Jesus is saying, following me, as an enlisted soldier in Christ's kingdom, you don't have time really to be frightened. You just need, need to get on with what it is that you need to be getting on with. But remember, God isn't necessarily looking for battlefield heroes, is he? He's actually looking for soldiers who know how to appropriate the power that they will need to reach the end or to defeat the enemy. In Romans chapter 8, verse 35 to 39, because remember this, through Christ we are more than conquerors. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Now you may drop along the way, you may fall along the wayside, but when you think about the fact that Christ won't let that happen to you, does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity? or are persecuted, or hungry, or destitute, or in danger, or threatened with death, as the scripture says, for your sake we are killed every day, we are being slaughtered like sheep. No, the writer says, despite all these things, overwhelmingly, victory is ours through Christ who loved us. Now, the parable of the tower builder and the king who goes to war, it's very simple. Discipleship is being tested each and every day. And you will be under examination, of course, even as you go through this week and every week uh, beyond that. But the application is this, what to do as a disciple or as a true follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Number one, I've only got um, four points here, five points, so we'll close with this. Number one, you must maintain a constant unbending love for the Lord. That's a constant unbending love. We cannot take up our cross and bear it if our love for Christ is lukewarm. You just simply cannot do it. A.W. Tozer wrote uh, some, some fascinating books, but um, 
in one particular book, I forget the title, he said, you can see God from anywhere. You can see God from anywhere if your mind is set to love and to obey him. You think about that. You can see God at work out there in the community, in your workplace. You can see God at work everywhere, anywhere, if your mind is set to love and to obey him. And oftentimes we find ourselves saying to ourselves, where is God? But you know what? Is your mind set to love and to obey him? Because if it was, you'd see him everywhere. He's everywhere. Maintain a constant, unbending love for the Lord. Secondly, confess and forsake sin. It's the one thing that is going to prevent you uh, from taking up your cross and bearing it. In James chapter 5, verse 16, confess your faults, even one to another, which is something that we hate to do, and pray for one another that ye may be healed. It's one of the fascinating things that I've discovered, and, and I'm sure that you're aware of it as well. Why is it that we can talk about other people's faults and sins and have such great difficulty dealing with our own? Uh, I don't know why that is. The carnal mind, I think, of its own volition, just simply cannot admit that it is wrong. I don't know why that is. I seem to have uh, plenty of opportunity, and, and very readily I will pick up faults in other people, and I struggle with those faults that I have in my own life. Sometimes the discomfort and burden of our own guilt is balanced somehow by blaming others for something that you're actually doing yourself. But we take up our cross and we bear it by confessing our faults and forsaking those sins that we have in our lives. So number one, maintain this constant unbending love for God. Secondly, confess and forsake your sins. But thirdly, count the cost. We cannot take up our cross and bear it if we're not willing to count the cost. Spurgeon preached a famous message on this particular subject, and he had three headings. I love the headings. Uh, hands up if you know who Spurgeon is. I guess you know who Spurgeon is. Um, he said this, number one, true religion, and I'm sure he's referring to Christianity, obviously, uh, because he was a great preacher of the faith. He says true re religion is a costly thing. But then secondly, he said wisdom suggests that before you enter upon the Christian life, that you estimate the cost that it will have on your life. But thirdly, and he closed with this, and it's, it's just a wonderful sermon to read, cost what it may though, it is actually worth the cost. And it may cost you a lot. It may cost you your friends. It may cost you even family members who will turn from you. One of the fascinating things about the, 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 the uh, Spurgeon's message is he said this, you know, when the Lord Jesus turned to the crowd uh, with the kind of words that he had, um, that would cause some people to turn away. Some people would actually fall by the way and, 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 and go back on out into the world. And Spurgeon commented about the Lord's process of winnowing out true disciples. He said this, The Master, the Lord Jesus Christ, was far too wise to pride himself on the number of his converts. He cared rather for quality than he did for quantity. God and the Lord Jesus Christ cares for quality rather than he does quantity. And how do you know that's true? Because your little church here is only half full. And Calvary Baptist Church is only half full. God cares for quality. Oftentimes we look around and we say to ourselves, well, you know, there are not great numbers. You know what? No, there aren't, actually. God is concerned about quality, the quality of his converts rather than the quantity. In other words, it may give the Lord greater joy to see one sinner truly repent and come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ than 10,000 people who merely profess to know his name. And that's why when I gave you the statistics before, really, 2 billion people are true disciples of Christ. Now, not that we want to judge any of them, all right, 
and suggest that they are not. But think about this. It would give the Lord greater joy just to see one person truly repent than 10,000 who say, I'm a follower of Christ. And so that's why it's really important that as we go throughout our week this week that we think about, am I a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? And I trust and pray that you are this morning. Fourthly, you must have a love for the brethren. You cannot take up your cross and bear it if somehow you're offside with the brethren every time you turn around. And I've seen Christians who live like that, but we began our, our reading this morning from John chapter 13. Dear children, I'll be with you only a little while longer, and as I told the Jewish leaders, you will search for me, but you can't come where I'm going. This is from a modern translation in verse 34. So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Fascinating. You must have a love for the brethren. But lastly, you must empty yourself of self. Probably the hardest thing to do. But you cannot take up your cross and bear it if you're exercising your own will. And we go through our lives exercising our own will each and every day. Remember the three enemies of the Christian? I'm not sure if you've been through this or Pastor Scott's been through it, but the three enemies of the Christian are very simple. Satan, I can see that. The Bible warns me about Satan. The Bible warns me how to deal with Satan and how I should, should, um, should be careful of what Satan is doing in the world. The second one is the world. The world is your enemy and the world is against Christ. But fascinating, the third enemy that the Christian has is actually himself or herself. So when you put that together, Satan, the world, and yourself, you think to yourself, I don't really want to be associated with those other two. But in terms of not growing in Christ, those are the three enemies that a Christian has. In John chapter 13, verse 36 to 38, what did Jesus say to Simon Peter? If you think about the enemies of the Christian being Satan, the world, and self, remember Simon Peter asked the Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, you can't go with me now, but you will follow me later. But why can't I come now, Lord, he asked. I'm ready to die for you, Jesus said. And Jesus answered, die for me? I tell you the truth, Peter, before the rooster crows tomorrow, you will deny three times that you even know me. Peter, you know what your greatest enemy is? It's Satan and it's the world and it's yourself. You're the greatest enemy of yourself. So emptying self of self is a critical component of discipleship. It's a critical component of taking up our cross. It was for Peter his turning point because it was at the point in time that Peter emptied himself of self. You see, at the point in time that he said to Jesus, no, I'll do this for you. No, Peter, that's just simply you. That You're speaking to me from a human level, from a human perspective. You're all about you. You're all about what you can do for me. No, no, I want you to empty yourself of yourself and what you do for me will simply be within my will because it will be my will for you. Something for us to think about as we go through this week. If I just want to summarize just quickly, discipleship can be described as church attendance, baptism, fruit, Bible study, prayer, witnessing, all of these things. But you know what? Outwardly, we could demonstrate all of those things and still not yet be fully surrendered to Christ. So if I look out at the group of people that are here this morning, we've gathered in God's house to worship Him and to praise Him. Uh, each of you could be demonstrating your, your, your love for Christ by your attendance here. But I don't know your heart and you don't know mine. 
true disciples' lives are characterized by all these things, but an attitude within themselves of humility, compassion, self-denial, confession of sin, servitude. It's that attitude of you first. And you know what? Only you know that. Only you and God knows whether or not that's truly in your life this morning. Where do we get the word disciple? What, what is the word disciple? Um, did you know that it actually comes from the Latin word discipulus? It's where we get in the English language the word pupil. Uh, one of the fascinating things about a pupil, in the fullest sense of the word, a, a disciple from the Latin is an adherent or it's an advocate, it's a devotee, it's an enthusiast. And you know one of the fascinating things about uh, English, the English language having been derived from all these ancient languages and so on, that you would describe a disciple as a fanatic. Now, if I look out at you this morning, I hope that you're not fanatic, but that your love for Christ ought to be at that level. You're an adherent, you're an advocate, a devotee, an enthusiast or a fanatic for the Lord Jesus Christ. A disciple has this heart attitude of adoration toward the Lord. We're commanded by Christ to be true disciples and to have that kind of attitude toward following him. Um, it's what causes the disciple to come back time and time again, um, to spend time in the word, to pray, to help one another in Christ, to, to build one another up and so on. And we're commanded by Christ, not only beyond that, but to go out and make disciples ourselves, as it says in Matthew 28. So that's our, our message this morning. I want you to, as you go through this week, think about that. Are you a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? As that great crowd would follow Jesus and he would turn to them, he would give them this very, very simple, but, but yet very, I, I guess it, was, it, it would not be a word of encouragement to some people. Are you truly prepared to empty yourself of self? And uh, are you willing to count the cost? Because where I am going, it's not going to be easy. It ain't going to be, it's not going to be a simple cakewalk, is it? It's just going to, it's, it's going to be a difficult life because um, you're going to be ridiculed and so on for uh, becoming my disciple. None of you cannot be my disciple who does not give up all of his possessions and willing to empty self of self. Um, so living for Jesus is our closing hymn this morning.